Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Pennies from Heaven, released December 11th, 1981. It was written by Dennis Potter, directed by Herbert Ross, and released by United Artists. This story was produced first as a BBC miniseries, where it proved a breakout role for lead actor Bob Hoskins. The original screenwriter, Dennis Potter, was brought on to adapt the story for an American audience and to reset it during the U.S.'s Great Depression. This is like Dennis Potter's M.O. Right. <laughs> it's, like, it's very much in line with what he does. It's like, I created a BBC series. Now, can you make one for America? Okay, I guess. Sure. And all the characters are going to sing along to old music. Yeah. To legally adapt his own story to a screenplay, Potter had to buy back the rights from the BBC for low six figures. MGM took the acquisition a step further by barring BBC from airing reruns of the original series for a full decade, and in 1990 it was rebroadcast for the first time. Hoskins was obviously annoyed enough not to have been offered a part in the American adaptation and doubly frustrated to see his breakout role prohibited from replays for a decade. Steve Martin was a huge fan of the original miniseries and trained six months in tap to prepare to take on the role. On a budget of $22 million, it only made nine back, though it did collect Oscar nominations for writing, costume design, and sound. Bernadette Peters won a Golden Globe for her part. We open on glowing cotton clouds with sunbeams shining through. On the soundtrack, we hear a 1932 recording of The Clouds Will Soon Roll By by Ambrose and his orchestra. We'll find a silver lining. The clouds will soon roll by. The camera cranes down under the clouds, and from underneath we see a rumbling storm. This kind of reminds me of the opening of Blue Velvet. Sure, yeah. Where you have like the, the beautiful pristine homes and yards, and as it goes down, you're just like down into the underground. Creepy. There's bugs and stuff. Yeah. Rain pours down, and the camera tilts onto a black and white photo of the city. A title card tells us we're in Chicago, 1934. Two years prior to the release of Columbia Pictures' Pennies from Heaven, to which this film bears no relation, aside from the use of Arthur Johnston's titular song, written for the 36 film and nominated that year for the Best Song Oscar. Steve Martin, as our protagonist Arthur, lies awake in bed with a five o'clock shadow. On the nightstand, his alarm sounds, but he was already awake. He rolls over to wake his wife Joan, played by Jessica Harper, beside him in bed. He tries to mount her before she's even woken, and she has to shove him off. I think we've seen this about six times over yeah. the course yeah. of the podcast as like the first shot of the movie. And what was this? Uh, carbon copy? And cereal? Cereal, yeah. 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 Oh, man. Both of those are the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Is it Siegel? Is it George Siegel for cereal? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's in cereal, but. Uh, no, it's Martin. Oh, Mull. but it's. Yes, oh, you're right. It's yeah. a different guy, but he's. The in rapist it. is a different actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think George Seagal's in cereal. Is he not? But he, he would have fit into that cast. You know, they all blend together. Yeah. It's yeah. so hard to remember. Arthur reminds Joan that he's headed on a five-day work trip and they won't get another chance for a bit, but she's not interested. Arthur launches into a song, but he's lip-syncing to a song on the soundtrack with a female vocalist, specifically Connie Boswell singing I'll Never Have to Dream Again. If I should wake and find your arms around me We snap back to reality as the song continues playing, but Arthur's lips are no longer moving, simply frowning in his reflection in a medicine cabinet over Joan's shoulder. We get a wipe transition to downstairs as Arthur prepares to walk out the door without any breakfast. He tells Joan that the bank offered him a loan, but he refused it because Joan has inherited a fortune. She reminds him that he's talking about their retirement fund, and he insists that the business is the best possible investment for it. When she bends over to collect something from a cabinet, Arthur drops his pants and sneaks up behind her. When he is rebuffed again, he chases her around the house this way. Arthur! Birds do it! Bees do it! Little birdies in the trees do it! He finally gives up and finishes dressing. 
He finds her incapable of understanding the passion in the lyrics of his favorite songs, and she insists that lyrics are not real life. He compares real life to a bowl of dog biscuits. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, if you're a dog. <laughs> That's what you want. You want a goddamn poodle. On his way out, Arthur implies it's through between them and he isn't coming back. We cut right to Arthur at the bank for probably the first time, seeking a $1,000 loan. The banker suggests putting up his wife's inheritance as collateral, but he refuses, insisting the business model is sound. He wants to start a business selling sheet music. He thinks he can pick the right songs. The banker blames the depression for the bank's unwillingness to waver in their decision, and Arthur blames the banks for the depression in the first place. Suddenly, Arthur and the banker are dubbed with another song, Yes, Yes, performed by Sam Brown and Carlisle Cousins. The banker takes on the voice of a young girl, and the two lean together for a kiss at the start of the song. They go dancing all around this beautiful Art Deco bank set, designed by Ken Adams, the architect of some of the most breathtaking sets of the Bond franchise. I don't really get this thing that they do in this movie the uh, musical interludes yeah i love them you love them yes i hate them they're actually the only part of the movie i can stand i hate well i don't like anything about this movie but th- but that's actually not true i love everything all by itself but not put together this whole dance number is great though yeah okay so the dance number is great and, and I, I love steve martin competently performing the whole dance number too I, yeah 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 okay Fine. I guess if you had this in isolation, it's great. But when you put it in the movie, I just, I really don't like it. Because if they were singing the songs themselves, maybe it'd work a little bit better. But they're literally lip syncing. And the reason for the, that is because it's supposed to be his fantasy world. It's, yeah, and I, I guess I get that. But this song needed to come before the rejection. It Like, like the song is symbolizing him trying to woo the banker but the banker right. already rejected and told him to leave so right. so this happy-go-lucky song well i which thought I the guess, implication of the song my baby said yes yes means that he decided to put up her bank account as collateral like she gave him permission to do that no he gets rejected here well i just in in the in the fantasy portion of this scene oh they give him the loan yeah because we're seeing them hand him bags and bags I see. Is, is this the, the theme of like every, everything is a happy ending right because he wants to live in the world of his songs so he just goes and lives in that world for a while and then he snaps back to the world that everybody else is in i guess in most musicals the music is progressing the story but in it's some also, way yeah that's true or it's telling the story and 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 although all of these songs feel like they are just a feeling a moment like an expression of his some of the emotions songs, in the moment i agree with you some of the songs fit the scene well as a continuation of the dialogue or but they're not a continuation it's just like a i just said this sentence and they match you know, right. like it's not really any in the original further information. In the original miniseries, they use way more songs, a lot of the same ones, but way more songs. And they're always very thematically fitting to the scene. I feel like this movie does suffer from that because I think in however long they had to tell this story, they had to cut it down to a certain amount of songs yeah. and they had to pick the ones that they felt fit the right. story the best. They probably had to pay a bunch of money to use I'm all sure. these songs, yeah. which is probably you, why this movie was so expensive, uh, in addition to all of the set insane pieces. Insane set pieces, yeah. 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 Well, see, and that's why I think like the Singing Detective film does it a little bit better because the Singing Detective film isn't an adaptation of the miniseries. Right. It's an adaptation of the guy who wrote the miniseries, the yeah. novels and the miniseries, basically about Dennis Potter. Um, and I will say though, as much as I do like the musical numbers in that film, they also seem kind of like they don't make rules a lot they don't of sense. Fit well. yeah. yeah, I mean they're fun and they're interesting, and the sets and the da- and the choreography and all the movements is, are really great. But in the end, they are just his flights of fantasy, right? And they don't progress the story. Yeah, I I think the point here is mostly to juxtapose his fantasy world to the the grimy, gross, depression-era Chicago backdrop. 
The message of the song seems to be that Arthur has changed his mind and accepted a loan using his wife's account as collateral, and he's handed bag after bag of huge silver coins by a row of tellers. So many, in fact, that he collapses to the floor, spilling them everywhere. We get a coordinated dance number from hundreds of lady tellers tap dancing across the central floor of the bank. We see Arthur's face on a $100 bill, and then he leads the dancers through the bank's main hall. We cut from the fantasy musical to Arthur driving a stretch of road and slowing to stop beside a hitchhiker, only to wave and continue driving. He backs up again, collecting the stuttering man and officially offering him a ride. Now, he doesn't actually say anything. Well, I, I think that maybe he does and, and we're just not meant to hear it. Right, but in, in the BBC miniseries, you hear him call something okay. after Arthur driving away. And so when he backs up, he's like, what did you just say? But in this movie... It seems like he's just picking on the guy again because he didn't say anything. Yeah. Is, it, is this movie rated R? Yes. I would say it must yeah. be because of the nudity and stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so like there's no reason he couldn't have said something. Right. He asks the man what's in his case and assumes he's joking when he answers a piano until he specifies a piano accordion. The man claims to make a living with his music and Arthur is intrigued. We cut to a music shop where Arthur is trying to sell sheet music for Albert von Tilzer's Roll Along Prairie Moon which was actually a successful song in 1935, so maybe Arthur knows what he's talking about. Von Tilzer's best-known work is his 1908 composition, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. The shop owner is unconvinced of Arthur's merchandise, and a woman named Eileen, played by Bernadette Peters, comes in, interrupting the pitch with a request for choir songs for students. Arthur is enchanted by her and kicks off another song, Bing Crosby's Did You Ever See a Dream Walkin'. Did you ever see a dream walking? Well, I did. They dance around the store until the song ends, and they part ways in reality having shared only a glance. The shop owner promises to send the item along to her and collects a name and address for delivery. She gives him the address of the school she works at, though, not her personal address. She leaves, and the shop owner gives Arthur a knowing smile. You know what she needs, don't you? Arthur is offended on the woman's behalf. Outside, Arthur watches the woman cross the street and hand the stuttering hitchhiker a tip for his music. His reaction is a little overenthusiastic, and he scares her away. Arthur shouts at his passenger for creeping her out. Shut up, you fool! But then, they touch hands as if in silent apology. Now, in the BBC miniseries, the guy literally breaks into tears and Bob Hoskins hugs him because he feels so terrible about what he just did. Because in the BBC miniseries, Bob Hoskins is playing a human being. <laughs> but in this movie, Steve Martin is playing a serial killer. I yeah. don't understand this character. He's, he's a serial killer who doesn't kill anybody. But yep. he's just, he's a maniac. Every time he's looking into the camera outside of the fantasies, he's a complete psychopath. And I cannot read him at all. It's so bizarre. I, like, I just don't, I can't even fathom why... Steve Martin would take this role if, th if this is why he what he thinks it is or why he's playing it this way. I think he thought he was taking a huge dramatic swing that was the complete opposite of the jerk because he didn't want to be the jerk forever. And I feel well, like it is a hundred percent the complete yeah, opposite. But putting Bernadette Peters in here doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> no, I no, nobody plays a, a redeemable character in this movie. Yeah. None of them. Later, it rains on Jimmy's diner. Inside, Arthur buys the man a meal and then offers his own when the man is clearly still hungry. In his gratitude, the hitchhiker launches into Arthur Tracy's 1936 recording of the titular song, Pennies from Heaven. Every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven. The diner wall slides out, allowing the singing man to step out into the rain and tap dance in the downpour. As he dances, a shower of coins plink endlessly from the sky around him. They seem to roll impossibly back and forth across the floor, and the pennies in this scene are actually hundreds of thousands of penny-sized sequins. Yeah, I, I, well, I was thinking it had to be because, yeah. you know, that would hurt. But also the, the way that they're fluttering and bouncing and reflecting mm -hmm. the yeah. light, it's pretty great. Actually, this one, I really yeah, I really liked the aesthetic of this one, and I think the choreography was really great. Yeah, and his dancing, and, like, you can tell he's a dancer. He yeah. just has a dancer's form. But honestly, the, the coin thing was confusing me because it almost looks like it's playing in reverse because of the, the impossible momentum of these right, coins. Right. Well, I feel um, like there's also must be some like fans or something must blowing them yeah. up th from the ground. Because they're going both ways across the stage, yeah. but they just keep going the whole mm -hmm. way across. Yeah. And it's like, how is this possible? 
The man re-enters the diner just as the song ends. Arthur starts to talk to him about Eileen, and when the man smiles, Arthur is embarrassed and stands to leave, offering a parting quarter to the man for a bed tonight. We cut to the next day as Arthur's car rolls up to Eileen's home on the edge of the woods. She's frightened to find a man at the door, especially one who somehow knows her name, but then she recognizes him from the store. Apparently her students gave him her address. So he went to the school and said, do you know where your teacher lives? And they told him. Man, stalking was so much easier in the 30s. Right? Or, or not, or less? I don't know. Yeah. And, he probably, <laughs> and he probably only had to give the kids a couple of cigarettes. Yeah, if the kids hadn't said anything, he could just go to the police and say, can you give me a ride to that beautiful woman's house? And they'd be like, sure, sir. He professes his love to her and demands a conversation. We hear a man call from the next room, but she says it's her brother. I don't even know who you are. Arthur. I'm Arthur. And I love you. We cut to a bar, and a couple of Arthur's friends are here asking why he seems so happy in a depression. He's still glowing with the memory of his encounter with Eileen. Eventually, Arthur and his friends are on a stage doing a sort of tap vaudeville number to the Boswell sisters singing It's the Girl. It isn't the river of God that all blew. It isn't the love dreams that bring joy to you. It's the girl. Steve Martin is tossed a banjo, his signature instrument, from off stage, but barely plays it before it's tossed away again. After the song, Arthur's friends start asking about Eileen's body, and he flips out on them. We cut to Eileen reading her students the story of Rapunzel. As she describes the prince to the class, she seems to be describing Arthur to them. Suddenly, each student's desk transforms into a pristine baby piano, and they all sing along to Phyllis Robbins' Love is Good for Anything That Ails You. Love is good for anything that ails you. Baby, there is nothing love can do. The kids all pretend to play instruments along to the music and dance quite impressively on these tiny pianos. I, like, these kids are all yeah, yeah, very well-trained yeah. dancers. Mm -hmm. Principal Warner is drawn into the class by the commotion. One student, amused by the principal's intrusion, gets his hands swatted with a ruler. Outside the school later... Just to be clear... The song and dance thing isn't the commotion he came in for. That I thought was, the implication was that. No, that's the imagination. They were just like giggling mm. at her storytelling. Yeah. yeah. Outside the school later, she finds Arthur waiting for her and offering her a ride. After a bit of hesitation, she accepts the kind offer, explaining that she is a bit shy with men. That's all right, honey. I got enough moxie for both of us. Before he even starts the car, she predicts he won't lie to her, and he is immediately bending the truth. Not if I can help it. Seconds later, she asks if he's married, and he answers with a question to keep his promise for now. Do I look like a married man? I even got a hole in my sock. <laughs> Eileen lives in a home with her brother ever since her mom died. During their conversation on the couch there, Arthur brings up his wife by mistake and immediately catches himself. Well, I wouldn't mind seeing two of you. My wife says, Arthur. God rest her soul. Here, he drops his aversion to lying completely, fabricating the story of his wife's death three years ago in some kind of motorcycle accident. Eileen tries to console him. He claims she was looking through a butcher shop window and was struck by an out-of-control bike, but just as he says it, he pushes hard against her and gropes at her chest on the couch. She expresses some reservation, but eventually gives in to it. Oh, Eileen. Oh, this is the first time I've felt anything since that day. <gasps> no, I'm scared. I never, Arthur, I never, I never... We cut back to Arthur's home with Joan as he arrives late one night. Joan was sure he was never coming back and is desperate to win his affections now. I've even, I've even put lipstick on. What do you mean? You always put lipstick on. We'll learn that in the past he has requested that she apply lipstick to her areolas to accentuate them, and she has done it every night since he left in case he came back. He asks to see and is quickly enraged at her hesitation, assuming they're right back where they left off. I'm shot. Christ, I'm your husband, Joan. She unties her nightie to reveal her breasts and her belipsticked nips. Joan asks if there's another woman, claiming to have felt his infidelity from here. Arthur swears nothing like that ever happened and transitions quickly to a naughty story about a couple riding in an elevator. They bribed the operator to stop between floors and look away for five minutes, and Joan can't even hazard a guess as to why. When Arthur explains that the couple intended to make love, Joan is disgusted by the story, which is clearly not the reaction he was hoping for. Arthur sings in another fantasy to a song from the radio, but never even goes into the song full strength because Joan cuts him off. 
not understanding his movements around the house. He tells her to wash off the lipstick because nothing's happening tonight. The next morning, we learn that Joan has loaned Arthur the money to open a record store because it's a more sound business model than his previous endeavor. She thinks Arthur is keeping a woman's secret from her and sings her first song of the film, Dolly Dawn's It's a Sin to Tell a Lie. Be sure it's true when you say The song actually reminded me a lot of Cinderella's A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, like the chorus has very similar intonation. A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. Joan rises from the bed and approaches Arthur as he shaves and raises a pair of scissors in a stabbing gesture, but when the song cuts out she's back in the bed unarmed. We cut back to Eileen's classroom sometime later, and Mr. Warner is visiting again as the class lets out. He has gathered that Eileen is with child, and he obviously can't keep her employed at the school, unwed as she is. It would be a scandal. He wishes her well, and forces a stack of cash in her hands as a condolence. Alone in her classroom, she calls out to Arthur. Oh, Arthur. Where are you? And we cut to Arthur's record store. Nobody's bothering to come inside, and Arthur is distracted by the models in fur coats upstairs from the clothing store across the street. The image here is framed specifically to emulate Reginald Marsh's painting, Hudson Bay Fur Company, from 1932. Are those real people that are just modeling yeah. in the windows? Yeah, and I think it was a real thing that they used to do. Just it was like it was like having back and forth before mannequins were invented. <laughs> <laughs> but but it seems like it would be much harder to see people on the second floor. Especially if you're walking by the building. Well, you yeah. light them so that you can see them from a block away as you're walking down the street. Okay. But if you're walking right at the building, you can't see them I want a good, yeah, good close-up of that coat. Oh, I can't because they're on the second unless floor. You, unless you stay exclusively within three feet of the building, mm-hmm. then you would have seen them already. It's supposed to draw people into the store. The people who are already there can I th- see I think the stuff the, I think if you were... If you were walking on the same side of the street as that place down the sidewalk, you would not have seen them at that all. That very narrow minority of people <laughs> will miss out on half the, the people who are walking down the street. <laughs> half, half of them are coming from the south and turning exactly west. No, it's it's on a street. It doesn't matter, yeah. guys. <laughs> but you can see it from every direction. Not no, not from below. You can't from all directions. I, I agree with Richard on this one. <laughs> well then. Two of us are wrong. Arthur jumps in his car to drive back to Eileen in Galena, Illinois. On the way, he stops to question his insane actions and smokes a cigarette under a bridge. He notices a girl walking slowly through the shadow of the bridge and eventually deduces that she is blind. He tells her that she's incredibly attractive and offers to assist her in walking home, but she tells him she needs no help. Yeah, he he puts his hand on her. Yeah. And as it's like, everything you do is terrible. Yeah. And in the Baba Hoskins scene... It's a little bit more like sweet, like, oh, this is kind of a scary area. The ground's really uneven. Like, like he seems like he's being really sweet and caring and she appreciates it. Um, but then he says the same, like, nasty shit after she's all the way past him. I don't know what I'd do. I'd take your knickers off. But she hears him. Because she's got better right. hearing. Yeah. Actually, Arthur's nicer here because Arthur just says something like you're the most beautiful woman i've ever seen and i i'm sorry if i shouldn't have said that or something like that after arthur leaves we get a tight insert of the blind girl stepping over arthur's crumpled camel cigarette pack in the dirt and i was like why would they do that and i was like okay this is this is going to come back later that's not something important to this scene that wasn't just oh look how fancy we can get put our camera close to an object it's chekhov's cigarette yeah Arthur resumes his driving, and we see him parked outside Eileen's home again. She demands some straight answers, starting with whether or not he's actually married. His reticence to answer is all the answer she needs. She tells him that she's pregnant and fired. She tells him that she requires financial assistance to survive this time. She asks for his address, and he scribbles something on a pad of paper and slips it to her. Even as upset as she is, she tells him she understands why he lied. I wanted you, you see. Did you? Oh, yes. And you still do, don't you? He's shocked by her understanding, and he tells her the same elevator story, and her response is everything he wanted before. Do people do things like that? Like what, Eileen? Well, 
make love in an elevator. Well, you mean like kissing, do you? Oh, that all. Oh, Eileen, Eileen, that's a good girl. You knew what I was talking about. Would you ever do that? What they did? Between which floors, Arthur? Eileen sings along to Helen Kane's I Want to Be Bad, and we get a montage of the two of them engaging in all sorts of public debauchery. Let a lady confess I want to be bad. Kane is better known for another wannabe song, specifically, I want to be loved by you, and the boop boop be doo in both songs were a clear inspiration on Fleischer Studio Animation's Betty Boop character. But I still got it, Eddie. Boop boop be doo. Take your knickers off. An elevator even comes down in the middle of Eileen's kitchen for them to enjoy themselves in. They kiss as the song ends, and we dip to black before coming back up on the accordion player eating a can of beans under a bridge. A familiar bridge. The passing blind girl trips over him, and he gathers quickly that she can't see. He offers her some of his gross food, and she's clearly disinterested. She tries to pull herself away, and he grabs her tight. Leave me alone. You can we see Arthur driving back to Chicago late at night, and as he passes the bridge, he sees a swarm of cops on the side of the road. He doesn't want them to recognize him if his wife should ask where he's been, but one of the cops finds his quick departure suspicious and memorizes his plates. Well, because he, he starts to come to a stop. Yeah, he pulls right. over by Because he's confused by what it is, but then he sees the cop looking at him, and he's like, well, if I tell her that I never left town and I got stuck late then she's going to know I'm lying if this guy has testimony against me. Closer on the crime scene, we see the blind girl, beaten, bleeding, and dead on the ground. Nearby, a cop's flashlight lands on Arthur's crumpled camel pack in the dirt. Continuing down the road, Arthur nearly hits a man standing and screaming in the middle of the road, but he doesn't stick around to offer the person a ride. Well, I think By the it's way, the... Oh, I was going to say it's a camel cigarette pack as, as opposed to just he likes running and he carries a camel number no, right yeah. <laughs> it's not full of water <laughs> the guy he almost hits is the accordion man i'm right? pretty sure it is but oh, yeah, we don't yeah. see him clearly enough he doesn't go back or anything right and i was pretty sure on my first watch that this was a red herring moment where we're supposed to think that that guy did it but that the point of him almost accosting eileen earlier was that he's just overzealous and he doesn't know when he's crossing like social boundaries so that so that he did something like that with the blind girl and that someone else killed her later so i thought the point was going to be that he didn't do it and maybe that arthur did do it somehow because he seems like such a fucking psychopath in this movie it's just like everything out of his mouth just makes me so angry and this won't be the last time that he almost hits something or potentially does hit something yeah and he might be imagining it next time we don't know arthur looks sickly pale when he gets home and joan is worried about him he tells her he must be good from now on. Gotta change. Gotta be good. We see Eileen arriving at the address Arthur scribbled down, and it's just an empty alleyway. He's tricked her again, with no intention of supporting her or their child. She wanders to a nearby pool hall where Christopher Walken, as Tom, is shooting pool. Eileen tries to buy some lemonade at the bar, and Tom suggests a mixed drink. I have a drop of gin in that, honey. Tom says he'll pay for it, but the bartender gives it to her for free hoping she will avoid Tom, but he comes on hard. She asks for a $5 loan, promising to pay it back. She claims her name is Lulu, and she lets him buy her a meal. Another song begins, and at first it looks like Walken won't even lip-sync because he's just talk-singing the first couple lines, but then he goes fully into it for Irving Aronson and his commander's rendition of Let's Misbehave. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber. Let's misbehave. And he strip-dances all over the bar. It's incredible. It's really great. (laughs) Uh, Christopher Walken is like contractually obligated to dance right. in like every movie, uh, which makes me very excited for the second part of Dune. Yeah. And aside from the accordion player, he's the most accomplished actual dancer in the cast. Yeah. No, it's 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 amazing, which is funny because then I went down this rabbit hole of movies that Christopher Walken dances in and I stumbled across one that I'm sure we'll never get to because 88 is so far away but it's called Puss in Boots, and Christopher oh, yes. Walken plays a cat that turns into a human that mm. dances. Yeah. <laughs> it's nine lives backwards. <laughs> it's not a talking cat, though. Right. 
It's no a talking cat. Apparently, Watkins says Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire were complimentary of his dancing in this scene. The dance is also seasoned with a fair amount of Watkins' classic vocalizations. Wow! Watkins supposedly rehearsed this number for two months and then spent two days shooting it. When the song ends, the world goes dark again and Tom makes it clear the $5 loan comes with strings attached. One, especially predictable string, is that she has to accompany him home. She asks for another drink first. You're not a tease, are you? <sighs> Because I'll cut your face. Yeah, I was like, is every guy in this a piece of shit? Yeah. Because I, I feel think... like we've done that for many movies yeah. so far. Where we're just like, oh, I thought that was the good guy. Like in Tess. Yeah. <laughs> where we were just like, no. oh, there's no good choice for her. No. That sucks. When Tom returns to the bar, she again curses the man who abandoned her. <gasps> Arthur. In bed with Joan, Arthur wakes her to say the store was a mistake and he can't move merchandise. And we cut to the most abstract of the songs so far. Arthur and his two ladies are together now, dressed as sailors around an old-timey microphone, singing Walter S. Hera, Gene Merlino, Vern Rowe, Robert Tebow, and Al Vescovo's Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries. People are queer, they're always growing, scrambling and rushing about. Why don't they stop someday? We cut to the record store, closing for the night as Arthur leaves. He hears Eileen laughing nearby as a man kisses her up and down the neck. We cut to the two of them, seated in a diner late that night, composed as a recreation of Edward Hopper's 1942 painting Nighthawks. Do you guys recall the last time we discussed Nighthawks? What? <laughs> Was it Nighthawks? <laughs> That's right. I know I can't rely on you, Arthur. Not for anything. That's right. Flame it all on me. Reminder, if he hadn't bumbled into her life, she'd still be an elementary school teacher back in Galena, and now she's an abused Chicago prostitute. She isn't even insulted by the retort, and just laughs as Arthur admits right away that it was a dumb comment. Oh, Arthur. I know. I can hear myself say things sometimes. Kind of a washout. She tells him she got rid of the baby. The cost of the DNC, on top of new clothes, drinks, and a place to stay, has put her $200 in debt to Tom. Arthur wants to know where they can find the world from song lyrics, and not this sad shithole. He leads her into the record store, where they decide that they belong together, and I'm already certain this will mark the third time he feeds her a shitty excuse and disappears. In fact, I thought maybe the reason it was so dark in here was because this isn't even his record store but a competitor's, <laughs> but that's not the case. Arthur says he can't afford to run away with her, and she tells him she knows how to make money now, and he's quickly sold on the plan. He's so angry about this vinyl cage he's built for himself that he starts destroying the merchandise to symbolically shed his married life. They make out on the floor and then disappear into the night together. Cops show up to Joan's door and she assumes her husband has been killed because he's so fucking annoying. <laughs> they tell her that Arthur and a prostitute destroyed the store after hours last night, but that's not all. They ask if he was some kind of sex freak and she mentions the lipstick nipple thing and that Arthur asked her to stop wearing panties. They ask her about the night he drove to Galena, and all she can recall is how horrified he looked when he got home. Well, okay, so yes, she mentions the lipstick, and then she mentions underwear, but the police officer keeps prodding her. Yeah. It's like, what kind of underwear? Where? What undergarments are you talking about? Like, like She's like, you mean like your bra? And she's like, lower. Yeah, it's, it's like... He's he, getting off on it. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know what she meant. Yeah. You just want to hear her say it. The cops ask about the night Arthur drove out to Galena, and all she can recall is his horrified look when he got home. He said, I gotta change. I gotta be good. Then, as soon as she remembers this, she makes an unorthodox request of the police. Cut his thing off. I want them to cut his thing off and bury it. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> we cut to Eileen's new apartment where she and Arthur are struggling to make ends meet. She reminds him that she was provided for before he showed up, and he still won't accept the blame. But she doesn't even consider it an offense. No, no. I'm glad you did. When you made love to me, I saw things differently. When she said, I know how to make money... She was talking about prostitution. Yeah. It's like, but he thought it was like, oh, yeah. you're going to go teach some people yeah. on the street about it's Rapunzel? Like, you know about stocks? <laughs> Perfect. She's sure their time is up soon, and she's mad they won't get to enjoy more of it. She leaves the place to earn some cash for them, and apparently Arthur is still grappling with the reality of living with a prostitute. Back at home, Joan overhears the convincing evidence against her husband in the case of the murdered blind girl. 
Now, we cut to a movie theater where Arthur and Eileen are watching RKO musical Follow the Fleet with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. There may be trouble ahead, but while there's moonlight and music and love and romance, let's face the music and dance. The interior of the theater is framed to resemble Edward Hopper's 1939 painting, New York Movie. Eileen admits to Arthur that she'd still like to have his baby someday. He tells her anything's possible on the other side of the rainbow. Arthur and Eileen stand in front of the screen and dance in unison with the characters projected over them for a moment. Suddenly, Arthur and Eileen are on an exact replica of the old RKO stage assembled again by master set designer Ken Adams. They perform the rest of Fred Astaire's song, Let's Face the Music and Dance. Apparently Fred Astaire was particularly insulted by the film's audacity to recreate this scene. And it ends differently than it does in the film. At the end of this version, a row of male dancers in top and tails with canes bow in front of them, and the canes rise behind them vertically and impossibly long to simulate the bars of a jail, and Arthur and Eileen find themselves trapped behind them. Coming out of the theater, it is now pouring, and the image of them standing beside the marquee is meant to emulate Reginald Marsh's 1936 painting, Ten Cent Movie. On the street, they overhear a disturbing newspaper headline shouted by a nearby newsie. Extra, extra, Chicago song salesman hunted in blind girl's murder. As they drive home, Arthur assures Eileen he had nothing to do with it, and she knows it's beyond him. He presumes going to the cops is a suicide mission, so he plans to flee. He swerves the car suddenly to avoid a black cat in the rain and skids to a stop under a bridge. His emotions catch up with him and he sobs behind the wheel. Eileen leaves him there. This is not what she signed up for. Yeah. And I thought, oh, thank God. Yeah. Get out of the car. Leave this guy. Never talk to him again. That's the end. Nope. (laughs) He follows her and asks if she loves him. And she says she will as long as he wears a happy face. He asks if she'll make love to him in the car right now. And she agrees. The next morning, the car's still there, not starting, and it's the same bridge where the girl died. Arthur tries in vain to fix the car, and right on cue, the cops show up. They recognize him immediately, and he makes a run for it. They tackle him right where the girl was killed, and we iris out to Arthur with his head in a noose, just as he predicted. Eileen watches the sentence carried out from the second-story window of a nearby building. Arthur's final words are the spoken lyrics of the titular song. Tears swell in his eyes. Every time... It rains, it rains, pennies from heaven. Even as he says the words here, I can't help but interject the words from the Louis Prima cover. Shooby dooby. Don't you know, each cloud contains pennies from heaven. Macaroni! (laughs) (laughs) But they're not in this version. Right when you'd expect him to be killed, he comes running up to Eileen somehow. Arthur, what are you doing here? Whoever said you could stop a dream? We couldn't have gone through all that without a happy ending. The two of them are joined by hundreds of dancers for a cover of Billy Hayes' The Glory of Love. That's the story of, that's the glory of love. The camera floats past a rainbow back into the sky where we started the film and beyond to the sun and a blue sky. The end. I was really hoping for just his legs to drop down into frame. And just be hanging there? Yeah, just just just, just his legs just to, to drop down into frame and then cut the black. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I kind of wanted something that indicated, like, this is clearly his last fantasy here. Right. And the, the biggest change from the BBC version to this version is that while they're on the run, they stop at a farmhouse to beg for food, and the farmer refuses them, but they decide they're going to spend the night in his barn. And then the next morning... He comes at them with a shotgun uh, and he makes them have sex in front of him. And then Arthur takes the gun away from the guy and then Eileen takes it and shoots the farmer in the chest and kills him. And Arthur's like, what the fuck did you do that for? And she's like, now we have a farm and a barn and we'll be fine. <laughs> and and they, their plan was to live there. And like in the next scene, they're just like a married couple that live on a farm. What? But then they're driving into town one day and the car breaks down and the cops find them. So she's actually the murderer of the two of them. Uh, But the whole six-episode series is available to watch on archive.org. 
and they're like an hour and 25 minutes each. I, it's like they're I'm very good. long, but <laughs> it, it's it's enjoyable. I definitely think the Hoskins version is better than this version, but I like this version. I love the production value of all the fantasies and everything. I, I have such a hard time with this movie because literally everything by itself is great. Yeah. These are some of my most favorite actors in the world here. Right. And I don't like any of these characters. And the sets are great. And the dances are great. Like, all of that stuff is great. But you put it together and it's bad. Uh, yeah, I I felt nothing for anybody. Like, I was like, I don't care what happens yeah. to any of these people. Uh, I don't like seeing Steve Martin play this kind of character. And it's not the first time he's played this kind of character. Yeah. Um, and the jerk was... A jerk also, like in addition to being an idiot. Yeah, I mean. But he's not this mean. Yeah, he's not like this. He's not like just weird sex assault kind of yeah, creepy. Turning school teachers into prostitutes by, yeah. by impregnating them and leaving them. But uh, um, but yeah, so like I was like when this, every time like something bad happened to him, I was like, good. I'm glad. Yeah. You know, it's uh, and then then the audacity of. This is the happy ending, like yeah, like we were really worried about him getting hung. It's like no, yeah. we wanted him to get hung. Yeah, exactly. It's like no, you don't get to have a happy ending. Yeah, that's why I needed the legs to drop down. I needed something to indicate he is dead. Yeah, yeah. like I get that this is a fantasy, and you can your like it goes up to the clouds, out. and then it just hard cuts to him shitting his pants, hanging <laughs> in the noose. <laughs> just like a brutal hard cut to him actually hanging in the gallow. Yeah, or just just or just like the close up on the on the rope going t- taut. Yeah, you know, just like. I just need to know he's no longer alive. Right. That's how much I hate this character. Sure, that makes sense. Um, what are we thinking? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm, I'm giving it a thumbs up because I really do love the production value of the dance numbers. Um, I do think that whether it's Steve Martin's fault or Herbert Ross's fault, that the performance from the lead here is weird and doesn't work because he should have been playing a straight human and not this psychotic caricature of a person during the Depression. Like, you can be a character when you're doing the dance numbers and the fantasy yeah. part, but in the real world stuff, he needs to exist in the real world, too. I mean, he probably is actually playing closer to a 1930s man. We just don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, it, it turns out those prob- people were awful. It's probably pretty authentic, uh, but that's terrible, and I don't enjoy it. Uh, I have to give it a thumbs down. It's a thumbs down from me. Uh the the musical numbers and the sets couldn't save it. Like I think that they were great. And if you were to put on any one of those musical numbers, I'd say, wow, this is really well choreographed. This is a really beautiful sequence. Too bad it had to be interrupted by, <laughs> by the these, rest of this movie. These terrible scenes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was just missing. Like even Bernadette Peters' character, like wasn't super redeemable yeah. in in any of these moments. Where and it's just I, like, I also kind of hated that the only character that seemed really wonderful the homeless accordion player is a rapist and murderer (laughs) it's like why why did you have to do that to the only character that anybody liked yeah well and then even his wife you're just like okay totally totally on her side of of he's being too aggressive sexually with her and not understanding uh and then she got real weird at the end Mm. well i mean she was angry and deservedly so i would say but the the way we start their relationship in this film, there's no way that these two people would have ever gotten married. Unless it was literally just a sugar mama situation where he was like, oh, your dad's rich? I'm going to hang out with you until your dad dies, and then we'll be rich, and then you can die, and then I'll be rich. Um, but the Bob Hoskins relationship with his original wife at the beginning of the story feels more like an actual marriage. It feels like two people who have spoken to each other on purpose before. And they laugh at each other's jokes occasionally. Mm. Well, what I thought this movie was going to be, it's, it's pretty funny, my imagination of how this movie was, was going. Because, like, he's a sheet music salesman, and he's like, he's like you, people don't understand the music like I do. I was like, then he meets an accordion player. He's like, oh, and he's like, he keeps talking about his band. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. he's yeah. going to find all these. It's going to be like a slumdog millionaire, but with oh. band members, and he's going to create a great band. I, I had a whole movie in my head, too, that was nothing like this. And it was like... They keep driving was, all the way out to Los Angeles. Oh, it was like and, singing in the rain meets the music man. And yeah. and this was none of that. <laughs> yeah. But I did love that the titular dance number with uh, the accordion player just sort of doing one of those 
flowy standing in place dances as all the coins rain down around him. It's just really beautiful cinematography for all of that. Um, what about Letterboxd? Um, so I have it at 135 out of 169. Okay. Not great. Uh, it's below all the marbles and above Donna the Mummy. Okay. <laughs> um, despite all the stuff I've said, I actually don't have it that low. Um, uh, I have it at 83, uh, which puts it below Buddy Buddy, but above They All Laughed. Okay. Um, I have it in 53 which is just under night school and just above on the right track. We are all over the place on this yeah. one. Quite a variation. Like I said, our director here was Herbert Ross. Before this, he directed Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Owl and the Pussycat, T.R. Baskin played against Sam, The Last of Sheila, and then to greater acclaim, Funny Lady, Sunshine Boys, The Goodbye Girl, and so far on the show, Nijinsky. Later, he directs Max Dugan Returns, Footloose, Steel Magnolias, and My Blue Heaven, again with Steve Martin. The writer here was Dennis Potter, who obviously wrote the initial miniseries and the feature film script. He later writes Gorky Park and The Singing Detective, which was a miniseries first, and then uh, an American series, or was it a it, it, film? It was a film. It was a film. Yeah, it, it was an adaptation of the series in the, in the, in the guise of... This person had written The Singing Detective right. as novels. And is, is and Robert Downey Jr. basically Dennis Potter? Yeah. I mean, he's not – his name isn't Dennis Potter. But, but he's I mean, the screenwriter. Yeah. He's the writer of the books, and they want to adapt the books into a screenplay. Okay. Um, I really like the film a lot. I think it's it's really strange. I wonder if it wasn't influenced by his experiences on Pennies from Heaven, and he was just like, like so frustrated with how poorly received it was mm. that – he wanted to write a story from that writer's perspective of like, I had this thing I loved and you made me change it. Yeah. And now everybody hates it. The music here came from Ralph Burns. He previously did the score on Cabaret, the movie movie, all that jazz. And so far on the show, Urban Cowboy. Later, he scores Star 80, National Lampoon's Vacation, Muppets Take Manhattan. And his final credit was for All Dogs Go to Heaven. More music uncredited from Billy May, who was a composer on the Green Hornet series, which lands him a lot of soundtrack credits for the reuses of the Green Hornet theme. Uh, he also composed on the Adam West Batman and 90 episodes of Emergency. So on that note of music, because um, you watched the miniseries, yeah. did they use the same songs as this Usually film? it's the same version of what they did in here, which is always like an early 30s recording. All right. Which yeah, obviously is like they're not going to use something from like the 60s or 70s. Right. Yeah, but. yeah. Scooby-Dooby. Cinematographer Gordon Willis. Uh, he was a DP on The Landlord, Clute. Godfather 1 and 2, All the President's Men, Annie Hall, Interiors, Manhattan. So far on the show, he lit the ill-fated Windows, which he also directed, and later Stardust Memories. Later, he lights Purple Rose of Cairo, The Money Pit, and Godfather 3. Editor Richard Marks previously cut Serpico, Godfather 2, and so far on the show, The Hand. Not later that he... Richard Marks. No, not that Richard Marks. Later, he cuts Terms of Endearment. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension, Pretty in Pink, Say Anything, Dick Tracy, Father of the Bride, As Good as It Gets, and Julie and Julia, among many others. Steve Martin was Arthur. Amazingly, this is our first appearance by Steve Martin for the show, and also his first dramatic part. The role was initially offered to Jack Nicholson, who turned it down. I think that would have worked better, yeah. because mm. I already think he's a psychopath. <laughs> so, that's yeah. so it would have been like, why is he being so weird? I would just be like, that's Jack. Yeah, you know, and this 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 kind of had that postman always rings twice. It did, vibe. but yeah. he probably was like, "I just did this for Rafelson. You sure? Yeah, you sure you want me to do it again?" Before this, Martin had appeared in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, The Muppet Movie, and The Jerk. He also made regular appearances on Saturday Night Live and the regular talk show circuit. Later, he appears in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Man with Two Brains, All of Me, Three Amigos, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Parenthood, L.A. Story, and many, many others. Most recently, he can be found on Hulu's Only Murders in the Building, which I think starts season three soon, or has it I already started? I think it already started, yeah. Uh, I love his uh, bit in Sgt. Pepper yeah. doing Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Uh, it's such a great sequence. Yeah, I don't, I've never seen that one, actually, but I should check it out. Bernadette Peters is Eileen. She and Martin were in a relationship together at the time after appearing together in The Jerk. We saw her last as the warden's secretary in the original The Longest Yard. She was also in Mel Brooks' silent movie, and she's back right around the corner opposite Andy Kaufman in Heartbeeps. Next season, we'll see her in Annie and later Pink Cadillac. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Because <laughs> Heartbeeps. The way I say Heartbeeps every well, time? 
He really stressed beeps. <laughs> heart beeps. Well, because I don't want people to think I'm saying heart beats. So I, I emphasize the P, I think. But but also, we like, I feel like every other movie we tease heart beeps. Yeah. And it's like, I cannot wait for yeah. this movie to come up yeah. so we can stop talking the about heart, heart beeps, beeps. Blue balls is going on. <laughs> Next season, we'll see her in Annie and later Pink Cadillac. And she voices Rita on the Animaniacs and Sophie in Anastasia. Jessica Harper is Joan. Before this, she had appeared in Phantom of the Paradise, Inserts, Suspiria, and so far on the show, Stardust Memories and Shock Treatment. She's back next season in My Favorite Year, and later The Blue Iguana, and a cameo in the Suspiria remake. You trying to figure out who that character is in uh, Anastasia, or no? No, I was just thinking about the Les Mis version of uh, Rita and Runt. Oh, <laughs> <Actually>. yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. I was like, that one's great. <laughs> Vernal Bagneris was the accordion man. After this, he's Preston in Down by Law, Dancing Al in Ray, and Dancing Joe on American Horror Story. He was also a choreographer on Shane Black's The Nice Guys. Down by Law, you showed me that one, right? That was yeah, Jim Jarmusch. I love that movie. It's a Jim Jarmusch, and it's John Lurie, Tom Waits, and Roberto Benigni as these criminals in the South. It's so fucking fun. I think that might actually be my favorite Jim Jarmusch movie. Mm-hmm. John McMartin played Mr. Warner. Before this, he'd appeared in one of my favorite films, A Thousand Clowns and All the President's Men. We've seen him so far, mostly as bad guys. He was the corrupt senator in Brubaker and the man trying to convince Travolta, not to mention the prostitute in the candidate's car in Blowout. Most recently, he was credited as Grant in an episode of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. John Carlin played the detective. We saw him last as Willie Loomis in House of Dark Shadows, the character taken over by Jackie Earl Haley in Burton's 2012 remake. Carlin had previously appeared in 179 episodes of the original Dark Shadows series and returned for the sequel film Night of Dark Shadows. Later, he's Mac in Surf Ninjas. Jay Garner played the banker. Later, he's Buck in Hanky Panky alongside Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner. Tommy Rawl played Ed. He's Lucentio in Kiss Me Kate. Swan Lake Prince in Funny Girl, and he's back later as the werewolf in Saturday the 14th Strikes Back. Christopher Walken is Tom. Before this film, he'd appeared in Next Stop Greenwich Village, Annie Hall, and most famously Deer Hunter. Last season, we had him in Heaven's Gate, and earlier this season in The Dogs of War, we'll see him next in Brainstorm, the final film of Natalie Wood, and he was actually on the boat with her and her husband the night that she drowned. Later, he's in The Dead Zone, A View to a Kill, Batman Returns, True Romance, Pulp Fiction, and many, many others. Lately, he's appeared as Bert on the streaming series Severance, which I only hear good things about. Yeah, uh, it's too bad it will probably never return. Yeah, the second season is paused indefinitely. Francis X. McCarthy played the bartender. We've seen him previously in Altered States and Cutter's Way so far. He reunites with Steve Martin in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Man with Two Brains, and more recently he showed up as Boots in Chris Nolan's Interstellar. Is Boots like one of his kids' nicknames or something? Who's Boots? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of who Boots would have, because he, because uh, he would have been older. Yeah. I can't think of who. Yeah, because it doesn't say old Boots; it just says Boots. So it makes me think maybe it's somebody who we only see as an old character. Raleigh Bond played Mr. Barrett. We've seen him so far in The Black Marble, All Night Long, and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Later, he's Grandpa in The Great Outdoors and a minister in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Gloria Leroy played Prostitute. She's Grandmother in Sid and Nancy and Barfly. Nancy Parsons played the old whore. There's a, there's a moment where Tom is pointing out the prostitutes in the bar and he makes fun of an, an older prostitute who is wearing a lot of makeup, so I didn't recognize Nancy Parsons, but she's best known as Ball Bricker from the Porky series, and we've seen her so far in Where the Buffalo Roam, Motel Hell, Smokey Bites the Dust, and Honky Tonk Freeway. George P. Wilbur played one of the motorcycle police. He has lots of stunt credits, including a turn doubling Michael Myers in the Curse of Michael Myers Halloween sequel. So that's his IMDb photo, of course. Yeah. M.C. Ganey is another of the policemen. Later, he plays another cop in Starman and Ratboy. He was Big Smith in Briscoe County Jr., Swamp Thing in Con Air, Captain of the Guard in Tangled, and Big John Brittle, the elder of Django Unchained's Brittle Brothers, opposite Cooper Huckabee's Lil Raj Brittle. Yeah, he was also great on Lost. Uh, he was yeah. uh, one of the major uh, reoccurring, I guess, antagonists. He's um, so fun in everything. Yeah. He's, he's always so scary, but he seems like a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Duke Stroud played Counterman. He was Air Boss Johnson in Top Gun, and he's the brother of Don Stroud, who bought me pants. 
<laughs> William Frankfather was a pool player. He was Whitey Jackson, the albino villain of foul play. We saw him last season as the friar in Inside Moves. He was Barney in Target MacGyver, Schwartz in Harry and the Hendersons. He's a government liaison in The Rocketeer, Mr. Franklin in Death Becomes Her, and Sonny Red in The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Sorry, why did he buy you pants? Because he came to uh, a baby shower when I was being born. His his oh. girlfriend or wife was a friend of my mom's. His were very small pants. Yeah, <laughs> okay. very, very small pants. But they, they fit like a glove. <laughs> so I was wearing them wrong, obviously. <laughs> They were very small. They fit on my hand. Will Hare played Father Everson, most famously Pa Peabody in Back to the Future, or Grandpa in Silent Night, Deadly Night. We saw him last as Dollars in Enter the Ninja, the old guy who's, like, selling information and porn. Yeah. Uh, Twink Kaplan played another bank customer. We've had her in small roles for Falling in Love Again, Underground Aces, and Under the Rainbow, but she's probably most recognizable as Miss Toby Geist in Clueless. Joe Ross played Bank Teller. He's Cement Man in Pete's Dragon. Uh, so when Pete first comes into Passamaquoddy, um, he's just trying to do like normal things, but Elliot keeps trying to duplicate it. So like Pete runs his hands across the fence, so Elliot just totally destroys, destroys the fence. It, yeah. And Pete tries to avoid the wet cement by walking on the curb, but Elliot walks, walks through, through it. it. And you get these big dragon footprints. Yeah. Last credit here is Conrad Bachman, who is uncredited technically in the film, but he played Jim the Doctor in Tremors. He's the doctor oh. of Perfection Nevada. Could be a geyser. They stink like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's so great. I think that's everything for Pennies from Heaven. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at Linktree slash Vintage Video Pod. Because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about our Patreon campaign. We'll always be free, but if it's worth it to you, $5 patrons get a shout out on the show a monthly exclusive reviewing a title from the 70s, and a hand in choosing each month's film. Joining now unlocks 44 full-size 70s reviews, and for September of 1973, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following 11 titles. Badlands, Terrence Malick's period crime drama about young love between a 25-year-old garbage collector murderer and a 15-year-old girl. It stars Martin Sheen, Sissy Spacek, and Warren Oates. Charlie Varick, Don Siegel's neo-noir actioner about a man whose wife is killed during a bank robbery, so he makes off with the loot. It stars Walter Matthau, Andrew Robinson, Joe Don Baker, and John Vernon. Don't Look Now, Nicholas Rogue's occult thriller about a married couple grieving the loss of their daughter while working on the restoration of a church in Venice. It stars Julie Christie, Donald Sutherland, and Hilary Mason. The Iceman Cometh, John Frankenheimer's adaptation of Eugene O'Neill's 1939 play about a collection of social drinkers and their sober compatriot with a dark secret. It stars Lee Marvin, Frederick March, Robert Ryan, Jeff Bridges, and Bradford Dillman. Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Hall Bartlett's adaptation of Richard Bach's novella about a seagull trying to beat his own airspeed record to impress his fellow birds, only to be banished from the flock. It stars James Franciscus, Juliet Mills, and Hal Holbrook. Mean Streets. Martin Scorsese's crime drama about a young man named Charlie trying to protect his reckless friend Johnny from his own hot-headed loan sharks. It stars Harvey Keitel, Robert De Niro, and David Proval. Lady Frankenstein, Mel Wells' Italian horror film about the daughter of Frankenstein continuing his work in the wake of his death by monster. It stars Joseph Cotton, Rosalba Neri, and Paul Muller. The Outfit, John Flynn's neo-noir crime film, adapted from the third novel of Donald E. Westlake's Parker series, previously adapted by Goddard into Made in USA and John Borman's Lee Marvin vehicle, Point Blank, remade more recently as Payback with Mel Gibson. Outfit stars Robert Duvall, Karen Black, Joe Don Baker, and Robert Ryan. The Paper Chase. James Bridges' comedy drama adapted from John J. Osborne Jr.'s novel of the same name about the experiences of a first-year Harvard Law School student. It stars Timothy Bottoms, Lindsay Wagner, and John Houseman. Tales That Witness Madness, Freddie Francis's British horror anthology film that tells the stories of four disturbed patients in an insane asylum. It stars Donald Pleasance, Joan Collins, Kim Novak, and Jack Hawkins. And The Way We Were, a Sidney Pollock rom-drom about a couple misaligned in their politics and their difficulty resolving these differences. It stars Barbara Streisand, Robert Redford, and Bradford Dillman each of which celebrate their 50th anniversaries in the month of October. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Rollover, which IMDb describes like so. The wife of a murdered petrochemical company chairman and a banker investigating the liquidity of his new bank stumble upon an international financial scheme that could lead to global economic collapse. We leave you now with the trailer for Rollover. I checked the inflows to 21214. This isn't against the law. This isn't even a conspiracy. I'm still not sure I trust you, you know. That's a perfect partnership. Orion Pictures presents Jane Fonda, Chris Christopherson, in an Alan J. Pakula film. Rollover. Money, capital, has a life of its own. It's a force of nature, like gravity, like the ocean. It flows where it wants to flow. There are risks involved. I've never been afraid of risks. They make the rules, and they can break them. You set me up, Max. It's a lot of fact. They make the deals, and they keep the secrets. I'll take my chances, and they'll have to take theirs. They watch the clock, but time is running out. Sell dollars. We've got 100 million to dump. Roll over. Come up with the 500 million, they'll take you seriously, all right. I feel like a beggar asking them for arms, and I hate it. That woman is not going to negotiate any deals for this management. Some people just don't understand business. It's not how you play the game, it's how you win it. I warn you on the problem. I am a bad person when I get in a corner. But if you think the only thing we've been doing together is business, one of us is a fool. By yen, sterling, francs. Give me five and twenty. Okay, at forty, I sell you two. Forty, fifty, sell five and forty. Quite a wobble in two, one, two, one, four. I have to know if the bank is rocky, losing money. It's where the money is going. And it's going through the basement. You can't do that. That's illegal. That is criminal. I'm afraid the matter is out of my hands now. You still don't understand the kind of people you're playing with. First thing tomorrow, I want all the locks in the house changed. They're rolling over 90 million! The most erotic thing in their world was money. Rollover.